a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hey, once again, welcome to the show. Glad you found us, however you found us, whether it's by podcast, whether you're catching the live streaming broadcast or the radio show itself. Thank you so much for being a part of this, and please, please, please subscribe to my podcast. It's easy to do. You can go to thebrianhydeshow.com, and there's an easy button right there. Click on it. You'll be subscribed. You'll never miss a single action-packed episode. By the way, this is one of those episodes today. Lots of stuff going on in the country. You see a lot on the news, and here's the thing. I'm struggling a little bit with uh, what is reality. Oh, what's that you say? Hyde's finally starting to grapple with the fact that maybe he's lost touch with reality. Um, No, here's the thing. I don't know which reality I'm supposed to believe because uh, the social media feeds that I see, particularly Twitter, I see a lot of unrest and I see a fair amount of violence going on. Portland, Seattle, particularly seems like the Pacific Northwest. Some of the major cities have experienced some really difficult unrest, rioting, stuff like that. Chicago had a pretty good riot the other day. New York has been having them time and again. My point is this. Yes, it's happening. But is it the reality everywhere? In other words, how many people's lives, you know, are are affected where they have to drive through a riot zone or they have to brave the highway being blocked by protesters of one sort or another? I suspect the answer is probably very few. And that's the problem, you know, and this is this is one of the reasons why I have urged and why I do this myself. I take a media fast every so often, including social media, just so I can get my head right and remember that for the most part, the world is a pretty normal place. And what I mean by that is, yeah, all the COVID-19 stuff is going on. Yeah, there is economic upheaval and it's building. Yes, there is unrest and there is violence and there is police brutality. All of this is going on. But... Generally, people are decent. You go, th- you go pretty much anywhere in America, you are going to find that people are actually quite decent to you. They want to get along. They, a- they exercise what I would term authentic tolerance in the sense that they're not looking for reasons to be at odds with one another. I know that there are some who do this. I know that there are some who take that opposite approach and the activists who, you know, they want to be angry about everything. They're looking for an excuse to attack people and they're, they're looking for a way to appeal for political power to punish their enemies. And it's, it's a scary thing. Not something I would suggest ignoring, but I guess what I'm getting at is we, we have to keep it in perspective. And that can be tough to do. And it's especially tough to do if everything that's being pumped at you 24-7 through social media or through mass media is telling you, be afraid. Be fearful. This is coming for you next. So I'm going to try to strike a good balance here. I want to keep you as well informed as possible. I want to give you things that are relevant, that will strengthen your understanding of the world around you and, and perhaps strengthen your stance on those things that matter most without playing to your fears. And and trust me, that is a hard balance to strike because so much of what's going on runs on fear or it runs on anger. And I don't think either one of those emotions by themselves are enough to bring a positive result in the end. 
So if you're struggling with this, please know I struggle with it as well. And I, I want to offer encouragement. I want to offer hope. I know we've got some serious challenges ahead of us. The thing that I think we forget sometimes is if we exaggerate those challenges, we can start to feel like, well, we're inadequate. We're not up to, to meeting them. We are absolutely adequate to meeting these challenges. And that doesn't mean it's going to be a cakewalk. I just mean with God's help, we can meet these challenges just like our forebears met the challenges of their time. But we've got to focus on positive directions rather than simply let's rage and pump our fist in the air and chant and pull things apart. Okay, that was a pretty good rant. I feel better for having done it. Let's uh, let's start with uh, let's start with hate crime laws. I had uh, Christian Watson on the show here last week. I just I, I am so impressed with this young man. He is so articulate and, and has such a great take on the world. And, and I don't want to sound condescending for a young whippersnapper. No, he's a young guy, but he has got his head on straight. And, and I look back and I think, man, I wish I, I wish I had had a tenth of the clarity that that young man has when I was his age. You know, I've, I've started to get some clarity, but it's taken me a long time and it's been a very uphill climb if you get my drift. Well, Christ, Christian is from Georgia, and there has been a new hate crime law passed in Georgia. And Christian, even though he is a black man, says, I don't support this hate crime law. And in an article published on the Foundation for Economic Education, he offers his reasoning why he can't support this. He says there is an unavoidable truth that drives all political calculations. When a politically expeditious moment presents itself, politicians will seize upon it, even at the risk of their convictions and credibility. And he says Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is the latest practitioner of such political opportunism. On June 26th, in response to the death of Ahmed Arbery, Kemp, a Republican, swiftly signed HB 426 into law, which increased the statutory penalty for hate crimes. Kemp deemed the bill a, a sign of progress and a milestone after Arbery's unjust, racially murky death earlier this year. Now, for those unacquainted with the term, the FBI defines hate crimes as traditional offenses like murder, arson, or vandalism with an added element of bias. For instance, if a white man sets a home alight without any evident racist intent, he's simply charged for arson. If he does so while donning a swastika and shouting racial slurs towards its resident, He's charged with a hate crime. But Christian Watson says hate crime laws don't really protect anyone and certainly wouldn't have saved Arbery's life. On the morning of February 23rd, Arbery, a 25-year-old African-American man, headed out on a morning jog around his broader community, like many suburban Americans do every day. He was soon intercepted by two white men who shot and killed him because they suspected him of perpetrating a string of recent burglaries in the surrounding area. A combination of local law enforcement's refusal to arrest the duo and prosecutorial incompetence kept them off the hook for a whole two months. How then could hate crime laws do much if law enforcement refused to do their job? And Christian says, indeed, as a black man myself, I'm perplexed that Governor Kemp thinks that I need the thought police to shield me from racist violence, especially when hate crime laws only apply after an injustice has occurred. True justice is forever lost when executed through subjective means which is precisely what the concept of hate crimes allows. He says, progress? I think not. But this legislative campaign didn't just happen in a vacuum. Christian Watson writes, Last month, Georgia Speaker of the House David Ralston sanctimoniously urged the passage of the legislation because he ostensibly believed it was the right thing. 
Apparently, so was circumventing the legislative process. No amendments were allowed. Effective dissent was smothered beneath a, beneath a blanket yes or no vote. The pretext of this legislative campaign is simple. Hate crime laws are vital to protecting minorities. But Christian says the evidence for the idea that hate crimes deter would-be offenders is at best scarce and at worst dubious. The most comprehensive report concerning hate crimes is the FBI's Uniform Crime Report, which documents reported hate crimes from across the nation. More specifically, on a national level, there's very little long-term research on the intricacies of hate crime legislation and deterrence. In fact, left-leaning publications like Vox have even admitted there's no good research to show that hate crimes are an effective deterrent to biased violence. Hate crime experts Vox interviewed also expressed doubts that hate crime laws deter crime. When measured on the state level, the claim that hate crime laws protect people becomes even more doubtful. A 2017 ProPublica report revealed a striking truth. Most bias-related cases in Texas are not prosecuted as hate crimes, despite the active presence of hate crimes legislation. Why? Well, one of the more telling reasons ProPublica discovered is pretty intuitive. It's hard for prosecutors to prove intent. In other instances, such as rape or murder, ProPublica found that prosecutors simply didn't use the hate crimes enhancement because it made little difference in sentencing. Thus, they opted to, they opt to prosecute the action instead of the thoughts behind it. In Texas, prosecutors who did otherwise sometimes risked a hung jury or an overall frustrating conviction process. Now, Christian says, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean laws aren't useful or necessary because they don't work sometimes. He says, they are. I'm no anarchist. But it's simply irrational to pretend that merely punishing bias protects anyone. Even if a new Georgia law had been in full force during Arbery's unfortunate death, little would be different. Oh, yes, the national press's tired line about Georgia being one of only four states without hate crime laws, which are better understood as thought crime laws, would have been welcomely absent from the coverage of his death. But as for Arbery, well, the law is only as good as its enforcers. In Arbery's case, incompetent prosecutors delayed justice for two months in what appears to be an open and shut case. Indeed, Governor Kemp seems to have faith in a system that allowed Arbery's murderers to nearly escape justice. If he doesn't, then why give the same negligent prosecutors more power instead of reforming their roles? After all, prosecutors decide who is charged, how they're charged, and the manner in which those charges are pursued. We'll pick up this article just the other side of the break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Welcome to The Brian Hyde Show. Again, you can check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You can also pick them up on lovingliberty.net. I'm sharing with you an article from Christian Watson. You heard him on the program last week. He is a remarkable young man and the host of the Pensive Politics podcast, one that I would suggest maybe you give a listen to because he has a lot of great things to say. In this instance, I'm sharing an article of his published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, and this is about hate crime laws. And it's a, it's a great take because Christian is a black man himself, and he's saying, look, Hate crime laws, however well-intentioned, really don't do the job that people say they're going to do. They're for the purpose of punishing thought more so than just the action. He says, essentially, this new law means little 
if the custodians won't do their jobs, referring to the case of Mr. Arbery, who was murdered in uh, Georgia earlier this year. And when police and prosecutors drug their heels and sat on the case for nearly two full months before charging the individuals who killed Arbery. He says, I can only think of two possibilities. Either Kemp, Governor Kemp's moral calculus is off because he, you know, supported and signed off on this hate crime law, or he cares more about appeasing political interests than pursuing the truth. But Christian says, I know one thing for certain, Kemp's wishy-washy policymaking does not make me safer. HB 426 and the concept of hate crimes generally poses a danger beyond mere ineffectiveness. It pairs a subjective understanding of bias with justice, which is meant to be as objective and fair as possible. This fact, more than anything else, is why the concept of hate crimes should trouble you. And this is evident within the bill's text, he says. For instance, it requires police officers to create bias crime reports whenever an officer suspects someone was victimized due to their class status, race, sexuality, and so on. But that has nothing to do with real justice. He says, think about it. At this point in the investigation, the victim is already victimized. There's likely sufficient evidence to convict the assailant for their crimes. And yet by injecting arbitrary characteristics into the mix, justice begins to prioritize the value of Americans on the basis of group identity, not individuality. But as economist Friedrich Hayek famously said, you cannot be just or unjust towards groups or characteristics, only toward individual people. And Christian says, in the event that I was brutalized for my race, I'd rather a police officer worry about what my assailant did, not what he thought. Here's the bottom line about hate crime laws. He says there's no universal objective standard for understanding bias. But officers are tasked to uphold rights and the Constitution, both of which are objective and clearly understood things. And in the process of protecting individual rights, which are an objective value, police shouldn't be burdened with a subjective calculus about possible underlying biases. True justice is built upon clear-cut, objective criteria, all the more reason why the subjectivism of hate crime laws won't protect minorities. So he says, I'm certain Governor Kemp had good intentions, but the details of his new hate crime law are far less compelling. Perhaps we should leave the struggle against hate to individual Americans who've made great progress on that front over the years. Amen. Well said. And again, you'll find this essay linked in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. All right, moving on. Um, you've heard some talk about uh, the, the COVID spike narrative. I'm going to say narrative because I'm not sure that this is legitimately, you know, a, a, a scientific based story. But there's a lot of fear going on right now. In fact, the fear has been, uh, you know, ramped up. Mask mandates are spreading like cancer. Is it all justified? Listen to what Ron Paul has to say about the holes in the COVID spike narrative. He says motorcycle accidents ruled COVID deaths in the rush to paint Florida as the epicenter of the second wave of the coronavirus outbreak. Government officials and their allies in the mainstream media have stooped to ridiculous deaths, depths rather, sorry, Dr. Freud, to maximize the death count. A television station this weekend looked into two highly unusual COVID deaths among victims in their 20s. And when they were asked about comorbidities, they were told one victim had none because his COVID death came in the form of a fatal motorcycle accident. Yeah, I've got that same say what look on my face. 
Now, Ron Paul says, sadly, this is not an isolated incident. In fact, the spike that has dominated the mainstream for the last couple of weeks is full of examples of such trickery. Washington State last week revised its COVID numbers downward when it was revealed that anyone who passed away for any reason whatsoever also had corona, who also had coronavirus was listed as a COVID-19 death, even if the cause of death had nothing to do with COVID-19. In South Carolina, the state health agency admitted the spike in COVID deaths was only the result of delayed reporting of suspected COVID deaths. An analysis of reported daily COVID deaths last week compared to the actual day of death in Houston revealed that their recent spike consisted largely of deaths that occurred in April through June. Why delay the reporting until now? Now, Ron Paul says we do know that based on this spike, the Democrat mayor of Houston canceled the convention of the Texas Republican Party. Mission accomplished. Doesn't it seem suspicious that so many states have experienced delayed reporting of deaths until Fauci and his gang of experts announced that we're in a new nightmare scenario? Last week in Florida, which is perhaps not coincidentally the location of the Republican Party's national convention, another scandal emerged when hundreds of test centers, COVID test centers, reported 100% positive results. Now, obviously, this would paint a far grimmer picture of the resurgence of the virus. Orlando Health, for example, reported a positivity rate of 98%, a shocking level. But a further investigation revealed a true positivity rate of only 9.4%. And those anomalies were repeated throughout the state. Cases once meant individuals who displayed sufficient symptoms to be treated in medical facilities. But when the scaremongers needed a second wave, they began reporting any positive test result as a COVID case. No wonder we have a spike. Politics demands that politicians be seen doing something rather than nothing, says Ron Paul, even if that something is more harmful than doing nothing at all. That's why Washington is so addicted to sanctions. The same has been true, especially in Republican-controlled states in the U.S., in response to the coronavirus. Faced with a virus that has killed about one-third as many people as the normal seasonal flu virus in 2018, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has endorsed a partial shutdown of the economy, resulting in millions tossed into the despair of unemployment. Then he arbitrarily shut down bars because massively increased testing showed more people had been exposed to the virus. Then he mandated that people wear face masks. Neither shutting down bars instead of restaurants or Walmarts nor forcing people to wear masks will have any effect on the progression of the virus through society. Ah, but at least he looks like he's doing something. Ron Paul says we are facing the greatest assault on our civil liberties in our lifetimes. Ron Paul says the virus is real, but the government reaction is political and totalitarian. As it falls apart, will more Americans start fighting for their liberty? I think that's a fair question. And, you know, I know that for some people, I mean, I was talking with a friend yesterday and I, I got the, well, Brian, this is, this sounds like we're venturing into tinfoil hat territory. I get it. It's, it's surreal. It's, it's beyond anything that any of us could have imagined that we would be dealing with. But I would just ask you to consider what is the direction that we are moving? Are we moving towards more authoritarian, perhaps even totalitarian control over our lives by some select few who believe that they know what's best for us? Or are we able to weigh those risks? Are we able to study things out for ourselves and then make the decisions as to, uh, you know, whether we keep our business open, whether we go to work, whether we wear a mask, whatever that may be? I think you see the answer. 
And it's it's just it's such a strange thing. Um, you know, one of the local TV stations near where I live in Salt Lake City has been talking about, well, there's a lot of debate going on about the mask. Oh, you think? Well, today we're going to share a story that helps settle some of these questions with science. And my question to them is, OK, is that science mingled with authority? Because if it is, then I have every reason to question what that science is concluding. Because it seems just a little too convenient that uh, so many different uh, forms of authority have attached themselves to science in hopes of getting people to do whatever it is they say. It's an appeal to authority. Scientific authority. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back. This is a gathering place for people who've accepted the truth that they are not sheep. And wherever you are on your journey of learning to think clearly and independently, I thank you for making us a part of that trip, making us a part of your uh, process. So let's talk about this for a moment. One of the single greatest duties we have as citizens is to learn to think clearly and independently, especially in times of crisis. This is something I picked up from uh, my friend Charlie Reese many, many years ago in reading his newspaper columns. I always thought that was a very eloquent way of putting it. The greatest duty we have as citizens during times of crisis is to learn to think clearly and independently. Actually, to think clearly and independently. We should have been learning that a long time ago. But what that means is we all should have turned off the TV a lot more and spent a little more time at the library or at the very least, you know, researching and studying things out for ourselves. What happens when we don't do this? Well, it's uh, it, let's just say, like I started out the hour, uh, you know, reality becomes a little bit tougher to uh, to discern. We're more subject to manipulation. We're more subject to propaganda. And when you don't know how to answer some of the things that are being thrown at you or how to question some of the things being thrown at you, you may feel like, well, I really have no choice then. I guess someone in authority said this. Dr. Anthony Fauci said it, so I must do it. Now, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but I've got to make it very clear. Dr. Fauci, whatever his accomplishments, whatever his notoriety, no matter how much face time he's getting on the television these days, he does not know best how to run your life. Nor does the cadre of experts and politicians who surround him. That's a decision you have to make. Remember we talked about these people who think they know best? We can't let them seize that kind of control. James Howard Kunstler has a really great essay on LewRockwell.com today. Is thinking canceled? With everything else that's been canceled, yeah, it, it seems like rational thought has been canceled as well. He says, everything's in play now. Consensual reality is on the run. The old certainties of U.S. history and the receding promises of the future sink into a fiery sludge of the coronavirus present. Things happen without apparent consequence. Authority is on the lam. Coercion stalks the land, rooting out thought crime. Fantasies and delusions rush into the space that reason has vacated in fear of its life. Maybe better not think at all. But he says you can't help it, can you? To be human is to be dogged by your own thought. He says one thought I can't help thinking is that the failure to resolve the dishonest operations of Russiagate is a big part of what drove authority and responsibility. Those two sentinels of sanity, AWOL. 
The crimes of officers in the FBI, DOJ, CIA, and other agencies go unadjudicated, while clear evidence of their seditious misdeeds has been publicly documented and widely published. It seems as if this great matter of attempting to overthrow the president has come down to the sheer will of William Barr and John Durham, daring to ignite the engines of consequence. And you wonder if they have any idea how their stalling and how their stalling damages the national psyche. General Flynn, the American Dreyfus, remains twisting slowly in the wind despite the DOJ dropping charges against him. Judge Emmett Sullivan is busy destroying the credibility and the authority of the federal bench with bad faith procedural shenanigans underwritten by Ben Witt's lawfare clack of Beltway shysters maneuvering in the background to protect Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Is it not past time for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to force Judge Sullivan to end the case or admonish and remove him? James Howard Kunstler says, beyond all the legalese BS, an innocent man's life is stuck unfairly and unjustly in limbo after three years of a malicious prosecution. Why has the attorney general not preferred charges against General Flynn's chief prosecutor, Brandon Van Crack, or for that matter, against Robert Mueller, Andrew Weissman and the whole special counsel staff for withholding evidence and plenty of other obvious prosecutorial mischief? He says Mr. Barr has plainly stated more than once that the agency he took charge over in 2019 used the criminal justice process as a political weapon. Is that against the law or not? Does it injure this society to leave that question unanswered month after month? He says in a better society, the newspapers would have rushed to General Flynn's defense, except our leading newspapers are so vested in years of their own untruth that they don't dare to cover the story. Where's the consequent for Dean Baquette, editor of the New York Times, since time staffer Barry Weiss ex- disclosed his failure to control the ideological bullying, coercion, and hostility to fair play in his newsroom? Mr. Baquette has not looked, has, has not rather wrecked, just wrecked an institution. He's made the whole business of covering reality look like a hustle. Does the New York Times board of directors not care about its reputation? Maybe the message is, why should anybody care about his or her reputation? And what kind of culture grows out of that code? Next, he mentions the mayors of New York, Chicago, Seattle, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, Portland, Atlanta, and Washington, D.C. What do these mayors have in common? All have allowed rioting, looting, property destruction, and arson to reign in their streets and entertained measures to defund and hogtie the police or abolish them altogether. These are all Democratic Party-controlled cities with Democratic mayors. And he asks, do you suppose that voters had a good look at these scenes and concluded that the Democratic Party is perhaps uninterested in civil order? And for what purpose exactly? Does it reflect badly on President Trump that the murder rate under Bill de Blasio and Lori Lightfoot is suddenly off the charts while they're busy undermining police authority and its ability to protect the public? What do you make of St. Louis Chief Prosecutor, effectively D.A. Kim Gardner, moving to prosecute Mark and Patricia McCloskey for defending their house against a mob that threatened to burn it down? Now, Missouri Governor Mike Parson declared over the weekend that he'll pardon the couple in short order if they are charged. At last, an unequivocal and decisive action on behalf of sanity. But James Howard Kunstler says there will be a lot more in the way of real-life problems to make the American people crazy in the months ahead. We've not even cleared up the affronts to decency and reason that happened before the coronavirus landed and began destroying millions of lives and livelihoods. The siren call of anarchy is already blaring. 
Is there anything about this republic that you think is worth defending? Is thinking canceled? Now, there's a very personal aspect of what he's asking here. But I think it's a question maybe you and I should be asking ourselves. Is there anything about this republic that we believe is worth defending? Well, my answer is the fact that, yes, for two hours a day, I plop myself down behind this microphone and do my very best to help promote the principles and practices of liberty, of free markets, of personal conscience. And I do it because I believe those things matter. And I believe that they're essential parts of the republic that the founders gave us. Imperfect as it may have been, I have yet to see anything that compares throughout world history. But like a lot of people before us, I believe we have taken some things for granted, squandered our birthright. And I think we're paying a price for it. All right, I'm going to shift gears here again. An article from Lawrence Vance. This was on LewRockwell.com today. A great little comparison here. Uh, yes, Mother is, is the title. He says, those of us who had a good mother growing up were generally given some good and practical advice. And he just runs through a nice list of what mothers would tell us. Don't swim right after you eat. Don't bite your fingernails. Don't suck your thumb. Don't eat your vegetables. Don't be late for school. Don't stay out too late. Don't stay up too late. Do your homework. Wash your hands before you eat. Don't sleep in too long. Don't skip breakfast. Put on your coat before you go out in the cold. Look both ways before you cross the street. Brush your teeth. Don't take candy from a stranger. Take your vitamins. Don't get into a strange car. Then government started to give us what it thought was motherly advice. Don't eat eggs. Don't eat butter. Don't smoke. Don't consume trans fat. Don't breathe in secondhand smoke. Don't eat too much red meat. Don't drink sugar-laden soft drinks. Don't use chewing tobacco. Don't use drugs. Don't use alcohol. Exercise. Don't inhale fumes. Wear your seatbelt. Wear your bicycle helmet. Wear your motorcycle helmet. Don't drink and drive. Don't text and drive. Sneeze or cough into your elbow instead of your hand. If you see something, say something. But now government actually thinks it is our mother. Don't forget to wash your hands for at least 20 seconds all throughout the day. Don't shake hands with anyone for any reason. Don't hug anyone for any reason. Don't visit anyone in the hospital. Wear a face mask whenever you leave the house. Don't visit anyone in a nursing home. Don't go to a bar. Don't go to the beach. Don't go to an amusement park. Don't go to a sporting event. Don't take your kids to a playground. Use hand sanitizer all throughout the day. Don't take your kids to a park. Don't go to a museum. Maintain social distancing of at least six feet. Don't get a haircut. Don't go to the movie theater. Keep your interactions brief. Don't go to the nail salon. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Don't go to unessential businesses. Don't sing in church. Don't take communion in church. Don't go to church at all. Don't fly on a plane. Get tested for COVID-19 even if you have no symptoms and don't feel sick. Minimize the travel of your employees. Don't go on dates with strangers. Avoid close contact with anyone who is even the slightest bit sick with any illness. Oh, and don't exhale without wearing a mask. You might kill someone. By the way, that's only a partial list, but you get the idea. Lawrence Vance says, hey, government, you are a mother, all right, but you are not our mother. If we want to voluntarily do any of the above things, that's our business. But we don't need you to tell us what to do. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's talk a little bit about Real ID. I'm in the process of, of applying for a part-time job, and I was just reminded that, you know, part of the privilege of working in this great country of ours, this free land of ours, is that you got to have all the proper documentation. Now, it used to be a driver's license was sufficient. Um, you know, I've got a passport, which I've found actually is uh, pretty handy, too. It's, it's accepted in some places even more efficiently than a driver's license. But now, no, you've got to have all of it. And it doesn't seem to be getting less complicated. It's it's really, it's been very, very interesting to, to see this process and to realize how bureaucratic it has become. Now, I'm not telling you, therefore, none of us should work. I'm just saying, where is this leading? James Bovard has a terrific article about how the, <clears throat> the Real ID Act ravages our liberty. And it's something that has come on rather suddenly. It's not like this all dropped in one fell swoop and suddenly, you know, it was there. Authoritarian control really comes in usually on cat's feet. It's implemented gradually, quietly. We barely even notice the restraints being placed upon us. So if you haven't paid close attention to the Real ID Act, which I believe was passed clear back in 2005, it may be time to sit up and start taking notice. James Bovard says national ID cards have been atop the command and control political wish list for decades. In the 1990s, Republican Congresses shot down efforts to move toward national identification cards. However, after 9-11, everything changed, or so we were told, and politicians seized the chance to unleash far more snooping and create potentially hundreds of millions of dossiers on American citizens. Congress passed the Real ID Act in 2005 as part of an enormous piece of legislation dealing with military appropriations and tsunami relief. Representative Ron Paul from Texas, one of the few opponents, warned that the Real ID Act granted open-ended authority to the Secretary of Homeland Security to require biometric identification on IDs in the future. Now, this could mean your harmless-looking driver's license could contain a retina scan, fingerprints, DNA information, or radio frequency technology. Now, while Ron Paul was often derided by the media as paranoid when he was in Congress, rather, the bandwagon against Real ID was quickly boarded by both liberals and conservatives. Twenty-five states passed resolutions objecting to the law or signaling that they would not comply. The Electronic Frontier Foundation declared in 2007 a federal law that aims to conscript the states into creating a national ID system is precisely the kind of scheme that the framers expected that federalism would guard against. Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff fanned fears after he wrote an op-ed that boasted by embracing real ID, we can indeed cash a check, hire a babysitter, board a plane, or engage in countless other activities with confidence. But why should federal bureaucrats have any role in certifying babysitters, asks James Bovard. He says the DHS eventually compelled submission by state governments by announcing the TSA would prohibit Americans from flying unless they either have a Real ID Act approved driver's license or a passport. The, US, the Supreme Court ruled in 1999 the constitutional right to travel from one state to another is firmly embedded in our jurisprudence. However... After 9-11, politicians, bureaucrats, and judges discovered another exemption to the Fourth Amendment, but the Real ID Act policies routinely scorned both the Bill of Rights and Supreme Court rulings. Now, believe it or not, most Americans do not possess passports, so federally approved state driver's licenses are the new de facto internal passports. Almost 100 million Americans do not have Real ID-compliant identification as of late 2019, 
That's according to the U.S. Travel Association. In Minnesota, fewer than 12% of drivers have licenses that will not be rejected at TSA checkpoints starting October 1st. States and individuals are chaotically scrambling to meet the law's shifting demands. Twitter is echoing with the howls of people who spent hours at Motor Vehicle Administration offices only to have their paperwork rejected because of Picayune quibbles. But the Real ID law poses perils far beyond the airport entrance. Maryland began issuing Real ID driver's licenses in 2009. In 2017, the Department of Homeland Security notified that state that its Real ID licenses were invalid unless Maryland snared more documents for each driver. More than half a million drivers remain at risk for losing their licenses. Maryland is revoking thousands, if not tens of thousands, of driver's licenses of people who failed to obey the latest uh, MVA document demands. By August 2019, 8,000 Maryland driver's licenses had been suspended. Almost 60,000 others were at risk of being revoked. MVA spokesmen failed to respond to repeated press inquiries seeking the latest number of suspended licenses. Maryland police began seizing the license of any driver whom they stopped, whose only offense was failure to hustle to show Maryland bureaucrats his birth certificate, passport, utility bills, social security card, or other proof of his identity. Now, James Bovard says he was one of the Marylanders who received a summons to show up at MVA offices to prove his identity to comply with the Real ID Act. And he says, I would have ignored the summons except that I didn't want the state to again suspend my license or vehicle registration on frivolous pretexts. The state of Maryland claimed to be unsure who I was, though they never hesitate to cash my property tax payments. Nor did my local government doubt my authenticity when they sent me a ticket from a red light camera at an intersection where the yellow light was quicker than a cat's somersault. Even though he says I was aware of real ID perils, I showed up at the MVA at the appointed time. The MVA clerk sifted through my stash of documentation and quickly found a problem. While my driver's license and passport identify me as James, the IRS Form 1099s I provided her identified me as Jim, a well-known ploy by terrorist groups. Now, he says, luckily, I brought extra documents and found a few 1099s with James. Otherwise, I might still be in identity oblivion. Since the 2005 enactment of the Real ID Act, the federal government has helped bankroll the license plate scanner networks that permit tracking any driver on the roads in many parts of the nation. So if Maryland decides to target people who received cancellation notices, there are nearly 500 license plate scanners deployed in police cars and elsewhere in the state that compile almost half a billion scans of drivers per year. If the order is given to use the scanners, a thousand people a day could be stripped of their licenses and arrested. MVA spokesmen again failed to respond to inquiries about whether license plate scanners may be used for enforcing real ID compliance demands. But the same type of hammer could same type of hammer could fall on citizens in other states who are snared by federally funded covert license plate surveillance. Any of this making you feel nervous? Making you feel just a little bit hot under the collar? Well, maybe it should. James Bovard goes on to talk about how the Real ID Act specifies a mandatory facial image capture for every applicant for a driver's license, which must be retained in electronic storage in a transferable format. As TechDirt recently reported, federal investigators have turned the State Department of Motor Vehicles databases into the bedrock of an unprecedented surveillance infrastructure. The FBI is regularly tapping into databases with more than 600 million facial photos. Ah, but citizens have nothing to fear. 
because, as the FBI's Kimberly DeGreco recently testified to Congress, facial recognition technology is critical to preserve our nation's freedoms, ensure our liberties are protected, and preserve our securities. I'm sorry, I need some gag suppressant here to finish her statement. Del Greco did not seek to ease apprehensions on potential abuses of facial recognition regimes by invoking the example of China, where the communist regime uses such spying to round out its totalitarian surveillance. The point here is, national ID cards will do far more to control rather than to protect Americans. I mean, the Real ID Act could enable the feds to demand far more information in the future. If Maryland or other states have the prerogative to cancel driver's licenses because of federal demands for people to show up with their passports or birth certificates, there's nothing in the future to prevent cancellations of licenses for people who balk at providing a DNA sample or collecting or or, or submitting to a retina scan. Do you realize in January of this year, the Justice Department actually proposed to begin collecting DNA from anyone, including U.S. citizens, detained at the U.S. border. That would be around 740,000 people a year. And the same people who tell us we have no reason to fear this kind of abuse tell us we have nothing to fear from TSA screeners who are doing routine checks to ensure aviation safety. You could use Real ID to undermine Second Amendment rights. The 2020 presidential campaign has spurred repeated promises to seize all privately owned AR-15s and impose other sweeping prohibitions on peaceful Americans. So if an overly anti-gun candidate becomes president, the federal government might seek to require showing real ID papers to purchase firearms or even ammunition, as in the case of California. Real ID could make it very easy to stretch that nitwit mandate nationwide. He says the biggest real ID fraud is the claim that Americans will be more secure after the feds further trample their privacy. At the same time that the government is demanding even more personal information from Americans, it's keeping more secrets than ever before, trillions of pages per year. Bottom line is there's no reason for citizens to trust real ID more than Washington trusts American citizens. Once again, you'll find all of the articles mentioned in today's show in the show notes. You can pick those up at thebrianheidshow.com. Again, thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.